This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And for the first time, we're together since John Tory announced that he is running again. The consensus seems to be that it's a done deal. We'll see if anyone disagrees. Yesterday, Ontario finally signed on to a national child care plan just in time for the Ontario election. And amid a love fest between the federal liberals and the progressive conservatives. And there's no doubt that Doug Ford plays well with Justin Trudeau. And uh, I think he has a political crush on Christian Freeland. And will that help him get votes? And how does that affect Stephen Del Duca? Does it uh, kind of marginalize him, maybe? Let's begin there. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome our panel, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior VP and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South. Hi, everyone. Hey, Hi, Char- Hi, Charles, let's begin with you. So um, <laughs> uh, we have seen uh, quite a bit of Justin Trudeau making expensive announcements, you know, alongside a beaming Doug Ford does that kind of uh, mess Stephen Del Duca up going into an election? Um, it's 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 very um, nice to watch these guys do their bit, and uh, and it's understandable when you have opponents from the different political stripes at the provincial and the federal level, and then and that's been the so sort of the norm in in our, in our history. Um, I think it's more advantageous for Justin Trudeau to keep the conservatives federally at bay. And it's great for Doug Ford to keep the NDP and the Liberals here at home um, away from uh, criticizing him on this matter. And uh, it's self-serving on both their parts. Um, it's going to be obviously a little bit more difficult now for uh, Stephen Del Duca to argue the point that he's not there for the children and those most in need when, in fact, he says, well, I held back and I got another year and I'm doing what we have to do in order to provide full-day kindergarten and child care for those in our community, and I'm fighting the cause. And it's all about trust, really. That's all this is about. And people seem to trust Doug Ford to make mistakes and to <laughs> fix them and to change his mind. And they're okay with that, it seems. Um, whereas I don't think the others have that same ability. Hmm. Uh, Karen, um Let's uh, move a little bit. Well, well, wait. What do you what do you think of that? First of all, that uh, is is this kind of a uh, brilliant maneuver on Doug Ford's part, like just before an election? Uh, yeah, um, I think brilliant. Maybe overstating Doug's <laughs> achievement here, but it uh, you know I he couldn't. I don't think he could afford to go into an election without some type of childcare deal. And you know I understand why he held out because Ontario has full-day kindergarten, starting in junior kindergarten, which is quite different than some of the other provinces. So there was um, maybe good reason to hold out and try to negotiate a better deal. Whether he did or he didn't, I have no idea. But what I do think is that, you know, timing, his time was running out on it, because if he didn't do it, he would have faced scrutiny about why that wasn't done. And so I think really it was checking off that box and, you know, smiling next to Justin Trudeau. You know, I think to Charles's point, there is a tactical advantage that he can you know, be seen to be liberals with liberals, and then he can see, be seen to be conservatives with conservatives. So to that end, I think it was it was a good move. Mm-hmm. Well, John, you know, uh, I was chatting with a conservative friend of mine who said, Doug Ford is a liberal. I can't vote for him again. <laughs> John? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. I, I, I don't, you know, it, it has been said before where, 
you know, Doug and, and, as, and was never, and even Rob, his, his late brother, were never real conservatives in a sense of, of you know, card-carrying conservatives. Uh, his father was, of course. His father was an MVP, as we all know. But um, I think they were much more populist um, in some ways, but obviously more center-right than center-left. So, so, but no, I wouldn't say he's a liberal. But I do think that the, the, the agreement that they had with, with child care was something that we've talked about on the show. We always knew that it was imminent. And, and obviously the timing of it was perfect because, you know, we're getting into the, the, the short strokes of, of an election call in, in early May. So it does, uh, I think, not only feed that, that momentum for the party to say that that's one major file that's now been resolved, and it takes it away from the Liberals. But also the other timing, too, is that it completely um, drowned out any potential signage or uh, coverage from the Liberal convention or the Liberal election uh, convention that happened on the weekend, other than the fact that they got, you know, a lot of a lot of complaints about not wearing masks. But, uh, but you know, so that was also the other strategic thing about having it. No, I'm sure that that wasn't the only thought of it, but just the fact that it happened after the, the Liberal convention was probably a positive thing for, for the Conservatives. And it does help. And I also, just one last thing, it, it is very true with respect to what Charles was saying regarding the opposite parties federally and provincially. It has been a longstanding history, quite frankly, that whatever party is in, is in power in Ottawa, the opposite's in Ontario. And this such deal and this kind of thing is exactly how why it works so well. And I have mentioned on the show that the Liberal NDP coalition that happened last time would probably benefit uh, the Premier, Doug Ford, and likely will, hopefully will, in the, in the course of the next little while. Hmm. Um, yes, but if uh, if people can remember the last elections, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau using Doug Ford as uh, his kind of nemesis or a punching bag and, and vice versa, and suddenly they're big buds. So uh, there is a turnaround there, Karen. There, there is, and I, but I think that that was a different time, and um, you know, politics being what it is, everybody has short memories. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't think this helps Andrea Horvath much, Karen. Not at all, not at all. I think you're right. If anyone is disadvantaged through this announcement and through the um, events of the last couple weeks, it, it, it will be Andrea and her party. One of the other things that I'm noticing, I mean, you know, an election is in the offing, partly because there seems to be, you know, an announcement a minute from this government. And <laughs> some of it leaves me a little, it it just, um, you know, makes me wonder, what is the vision and the strategy? That's kind of what I miss in all of this, John. Well, you know, if you saw some of the ads that were released by the the conservatives over the weekend on social media with respect to, you know, the building back and and the person you can trust, I think what you're going to see eventually come out of is a narrative to say, look, you 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 know Ford. Yes, it's not easy. It wasn't an easy road over the last four years, but but we've managed it. We've we've done what we could. Have there been mistakes? Absolutely. Was it difficult? For sure. But. Here we are, right? We're in better shape than other provinces. We're getting ourselves out of this. And so I think it's going to be a, a campaign about trust, who you can trust, and also forward thinking. You know, who who will you be able to put your trust in to see that we can get ourselves out of this? But if we happen to be back in the pandemic, we've now got something that we've been able to build over the next little while. So I think that's the narrative that the campaign is going to build uh, over the course of the next little while that will likely be launched when the, when, the writ is, when, the, when the writ is dropped in early May. Charles, uh, turning to the conservative leadership race, we're hearing a lot about Pierre Polyevre. He's got rallies that get big turnouts and, and lots of quiet from everyone else. What do you make of that? Well, Pierre is certainly outspoken, and he makes an effort uh, at every minute and every hour, even when he's traveling in the car, to communicate and to get his message out. I think he's feeling the pressure. I think he's recognizing that he may not appeal across the country and that he is appealing to a fringe group, so he's trying to broaden his scope. Um, but, I mean, when it comes to the notion of trust that John was speaking of, of all of their leaders, of all of their candidates, the one I trust the most um, uh, is the older gentleman. <laughs> I mean, he's the one that, that has made and has had nation-building experience, and I, and I think people trust him. But they don't necessarily want that. I think Pierre is trying to appeal uh, to those that are energy-focused, new blood, change it up, let's put on the fight. And he has to cont- 
continue to pursue uh, Trudeau and the Liberal team as being uh, the real problem, and he's the only one that can overcome them. I, 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 I mean, and I don't. I won't discount Patrick Brown. Patrick is so he's he's out there doing what is what uh, has to be done. He'll make noise too as it goes forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, Paul Evre also wants us to become a cryptocurrency hub. And it's interesting that you mentioned Jean Charest's age, which isn't that high, by the way, because <laughs> uh, it was cast by at least one commentator as a generational feud, as, uh, um, I guess, millennials versus boomers. Karen, what do you think of that? I mean, maybe uh, that person kind of uh, ha- is onto something there. You know, it, it could be. And, um, but, but I think there's a couple other things at play. I, you know, I think that um, Polyavra is having the big rallies because the, the, the group that he's appealing to will feel comfortable going to rallies and not wearing masks, whereas all the other candidates are trying to figure out how do you campaign in this strange, not-yet-post-COVID era where some people still are uncomfortable gathering in large groups. And so that's, that's the appeal that they're trying to, like, that's the constituency they're trying to appeal to that that Pierre won't necessarily appeal to. And even though he's got big numbers, I, I don't know that that necessarily translates into widespread support. And so I, I think it is, and I, again, I'm not on anybody's campaign, I don't know, but I'm imagining in this world of campaigning and how do you do it when people are still maybe reluctant to gather in large groups, it's a, it's a challenge. And um, the other thing I'd say is, certainly amongst my peer group, I mean, I'm in the, I'm in the older category, the, uh, the plus 50, but... It, you know, we know Jean Charest. We know his name. We know what he's about. We know his history. There's a comfort level there. But, you know, under 50 may not have that same level of uh, name recognition. So I, I don't, I just, I don't think it's a generational thing. I think it's just where, where his name resonates and whether or not he's going to be able to appeal to a group that, you know, if he's relying on a group that knows his name, that's great. But he's got to appeal to a broader group that may not know his name. Um, at a time when there's reluctance to come out and get to know him. John, I would imagine that the actual membership of the Conservative Party skews older. Uh, do, you, do you know the breakdown demographically? Uh, I, I would say that's probably intuitive to, to think that. And, and, but, uh, but certainly, I think leaderships uh, erase that, right, as far as who you're able to, who you're able to get. And, and sometimes the younger members are the ones that are the most active and the most, uh, the most you know, willing to sign up and sign up others uh, mostly the, the, the older folks are the ones that have been members for for years you know all they have to do is renew their memberships and i know for a fact that every writing association is always a challenge when it comes to renewals right because you know you have to remind somebody they have to go into the website they have to go into it so so sometimes when it comes to leaderships the younger voters are the ones that are the most most uh, uh, able to, to to get them sign up members and i think that's going to be a plus for uh, for pierre paul that for sure just given some of the rallies but karen's point is quite valid in the sense that it's one thing to have a rally of 500 people um but you know with our with our voting system with the party's voting system i should say you know it's all weighted so you can have six thousand people in one riding but you're it's only going to cost 100 votes of 100 points you have to have those members spread out across many ridings, and, and that's where the strategy comes. But I wouldn't, you know, Jean Charest is just getting out there. I know he was in Toronto yesterday, and I think today in, in the GTA. So they're getting out there. They're getting their their uh, their people uh, uh, focused. But the messaging is going to be quite stark. What Pierre is saying and what he is appealing to is a very different crowd than who Jean Charest and, and Patrick Brown are going to be appealing to. So that's going to be an interesting uh, as, in, as this leadership evolves and we get into the debates, quite frankly, Libby, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out as far as the ideological um, um, spectrum of the party. Hmm. Yeah, that uh, it really is being considered to be a battle for the, the soul of the party. And I'm interested, Charles, this may, might be a bit of an aside, but does that voting system make sense? I mean, not every riding across the country is equally voted uh, by any means when it comes to an actual general election. Are you asking me? Yep, yep. Um, so I'm not sure the, the full mechanics. I know that certain ridings with fewer population have the same amount of pull as those with a larger population, say, in the GTA, to give broader appeal across the country. That makes sense. And every one of those particular votes count. Um, 
but in terms of regional, um, I mean, the first past the post system that we have for general elections uh, is argued, is always argued, but I think it's probably at this point still the best way to go in order to provide greater representation across the country. Well, what I what I was asking is is the means that they tabulate the winners and losers of their leadership. Is that really the best way to go, given how general elections work? Because it's it's pretty different. It and, is. And, and they keep. Uh, and Doug Ford um, took advantage of it in the provincial uh, right. leadership play. Um, that'll be up to uh, the respective. I mean, until recently, the Liberal Party was still doing it based on uh, on, on the engagement of the delegates. Um, that's not the case anymore in in the the online version that's available. To uh, to the party members, um, I think it loses some of its uh, negotiations that are done by the leaders in those situations because now they try to support their second vote in in what they go forward in their and that's what that's what Josh Ray and and uh, and Patrick Brown are are adhering to or trying to. Okay, to become the second choice and squeak yeah. through that way. Karen, let's turn to uh, the municipal race, the race for mayor of Toronto. John Tory declaring he's running again. I don't think that surprised anybody. No, I don't think so. And, um, you know, he said he was going to go after two terms. But, you know, really, I guess you could say that the uh, the, the time of COVID sort of um, suspended his, you know, any of, of his city building ambitions to to focus on simply getting through the pandemic intact. And so, you know, one one could argue that, you know, he does want that chance to build his legacy that he hasn't been able to in these last four years. And, you know, I don't think there's anybody out there that can launch a challenge uh, to his candidacy because, you know, he's got the money, he's got the resources, he's got the broad base of support. And um, I, I don't really see anybody launching a campaign against him. Do you, who would have been doing that if he had said he wasn't running again? Let's let's uh, try to have yes. a look at that. It was sort of curious to see Adam Vaughn say he wasn't, you know, at the same time he's saying, I have absolutely no interest in running for mayor, but I'm not running for MP. <laughs> he started out with, I'm not running for mayor. <laughs> well, thank is God is what I say. <laughs> I know, me too. Here, here, here. Um, <laughs> you know, and then, I, you know, I don't think, I don't think the left have any natural darling to rally around. Um, you know, I know some of the councillors are ambitious, uh, particularly Deputy Mayor Anna Bailao and Deputy Mayor Michael Thompson. Um, and so, you know, whether they can contain their ambition for another four years or they decide to do something else, given that there's upcoming elections in, in the near future, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, they're not. I wouldn't. Uh, would you call them left? Um, I would say that they're more, um, you know, center center-left, center-liberal, then center-conservative. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard. If, if, uh, John Tory, as mayor, to me, is about as liberal as it gets. Oh, yeah. Uh, or <laughs> yeah, woke, yeah. or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, I've, I've seen a bunch of commentaries saying, oh, the quote, progressives on council aren't happy because uh, this isn't good for them and they won't be able to grow the base. But, I mean... I, I would think that, you know, that that agenda, you know, when you look at what certainly they say they're focusing on affordable housing, helping the homeless, uh, I, I'm not sure w- what uh, progressives see wrong with that. I don't that. think it gets any better for them than right now with John as mayor, to be candid. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, he's, uh, I, whatever he calls himself, uh, he's pretty left. Am I wrong? <laughs> no. No, nope. <laughs> Charles, do you have no, a view? He's, he's left leaning in these initiatives, and he has to be. I mean, the city is demanding it, and his counselors around him are, you know, coordinating efforts to do these things. You're, you're absolutely right. I think Karen is is, is bang on that he is um, a chameleon, and he's enabling himself to be seen as a conservative, yet being so much more left wing than others in regards to this. And that's because of the makeup of our city. And, and I think he actually is going to be able to leave a legacy, even if he was not to run. Um, he's at a high point, And he, I mean, I'm not sure what more he does that he wants to achieve by sticking around for another four years. Um, 
but so be it. I, I think uh, the council and, and the other left-leaning councillors are going to mount campaigns against the right-wing councillors that exist there, and that's that's their only fight. They're not going to mount anybody against John Tory. Um, that's in the bag as it stands now. Uh, the, the criticism I sometimes hear of him, I mean, he definitely behaves like you want a mayor to behave. He certainly shows up. I mean, no one works harder, and he's at every event that he can be at and I think listens very well. But there are some people who say, well, what has he actually accomplished? What has he actually done? <laughs> Silence. Kara? Oh, sorry, John, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, well, I think all of what you've just mentioned is exactly why I think he's able to run for a third term. I, I had the privilege and honor of, of co-chairing his, his first campaign when he, when he became mayor, um, you know, back, uh, eight years ago. And, and, you know, he was very serious about it being a two-term, a two-term, um, office in, in some ways. But obviously, as Karen mentioned, the, the, the pandemic obviously caused a, a bit of a change in that. And I think he's right to say you need somebody with, with, some knowledge and a steady hand on the tiller to kind of carry us through the next level, which I think is why he'll likely win again. But I would say that this is perfect for him. And municipal politics is perfect for John because when he was leader of the Conservative Party, there was a struggle in that people on the on the on the conservative side that were more right wing or more center center right were not happy with John because he was much more of a moderate and he would play more to the moderate. Whereas in municipal politics, you're able to play both sides: the, the, the conservative side of the of the council and also the left side of the council, which is what he does best. Is that mediation, that that brokerage politics kind of thing, which has made him successful? Um, but I think in Toronto, it's it's a it's it's a moderate city. You're, you're not you're not going to be successful if you're extreme right or an extreme left uh, in in most places because of the amalgamation, right? You have to win both the uh, the suburban four one six as the four one downtown four one six. So John is a perfect candidate for that. Karen, what do you, what do you see uh, that he has done that's really going to be part of his legacy, or does it have to happen still? Well, you know, I I think that um, you know the legacy that he's leaving the city is a, is he's a mayor with a solid hand, a steady hand rather at the till, you know, and just you know guiding everyone through. There was no um, upsets, no scandals, no you know, <laughs> and, and all that is to his credit. I you know where he I think has. Um, you know, if there is going to be a criticism, it was it would be leveled around. You know, he ran on the smart track, which you know really was electrifying Go Transit, which was really not in his remit anyway. And then the rail deck, which again was lost at a, at appeal, and so the, because it was privately held land. So you know, there was two big announcements around you know how he wanted to be um, seen to be pro transit and to be pro park, and. You know, but to his credit, I think he's seen to be both those things, even though he didn't really do anything on them. Um, and so, you know, whether, and I, I, I don't think these next four years is going to give him the next big thing that he can cut the ribbon on be, just because there's just not a lot of money around. Um, but that being said, he'll still continue to grow his brand as a moderate mayor who listens to the people, who gets things done, and is a good manager. And there, that's, a, that's a great legacy. There's nothing wrong with that legacy. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so, uh, I guess no one foresees any kind of serious challenge. Is 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 anyone even going to run against him? Oh, oh I'm be sure there'll be people. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm sure there'll be people running against him. I'm sure there'll be some that are that are you know on the on the NDP side of council that might throw their names in. Certainly, nobody from the center right of any import will will put their name forward against John, unless they want to do it to raise their profile, knowing that you know in four years hence that they may have an op- another opportunity. But yeah, you know, but but Karen had mentioned sort of the names of Anna Bailao and, and Michael Thompson, who are incredible, credible candidates who probably would have run if, if John didn't run this time, who likely will run in four years. Um, and, but have another four years of building their base and building their uh, profiles up. Hmm. Um, yeah, what about uh, people on the left, someone like Kristen Wong-Tem? More Cressy, quite frankly. You know, I know, although Karen Cressy said that he wasn't running again next time, but you know, I always think that either between uh, Joe Cressy and, and uh, Layton, is it Mike Layton, I believe, those two counselors are always ones that have been, been figured that are left, but they're kind of more moderate left in some ways than Christian Wong-Tam, who's seen much more of an extreme left in some ways. I guess yeah, so. And she's not very uh, well known outside of downtown. 
Uh, she doesn't doesn't resonate in the suburbs. Okay, I I mean I don't know that that Joe Cressy would. He's uh, he's leaving politics, but uh, we uh, we are in his ward here, and I don't think anybody <laughs> has ever seen uh, hide nor hair of him and and, in all the time. Pardon. He's going to spend more time with his family. <laughs> I think he spends a lot of time with his family now, and uh, he does uh, the board of health. But but he makes himself uh, scarce, according to my neighbors here, he and and our experience. He makes himself pretty darn scarce uh, when it comes to issues of constituency. So I don't even know if there was some kind of internal poll or whatever. Uh, that made him make his decision, but I guess he's young enough he could try to come back. He's going to need money, and that's always a challenge. And last time they put a contest against John Tory, a lot of money was raised by the opponents, and he still won by 40%. That's so I don't think they're going to... They need to exert a lot of time and effort and uh, and certainly hit the pavement. That's something that John Tory does so well. They're going to have to do that also, but will they be able to generate the amount of money that's necessary to do so? Uh, I don't think they're going to risk it. Well, yeah, that was Jennifer Keys, Matt. Yeah. And we haven't heard anything from her for a long time. She's in the private sector. Mm-hmm. I don't think Yeah, she's... it's always a risk. It's a risk to say I'll get the name recognition out because you really don't. Um, because, you, you know, you run, you lose, and nobody wants to put you in a position where you're just going to be self-promoting. So you've got four years where you go back into exile. And then to come out again... It's, you're just built, like you're in the same position. So I don't think there's any benefit of anybody running to get their name out. That's interesting. We will have to explore that a little further uh, next time because we're basically out of time. I'm going to go around the table. Uh, tell me what you think we really need to watch for over the coming week, uh, beginning with John. Well, you know, I just... I would say the the fact that our our soccer team has now uh, won and is now going to be in the World Cup, I think those celebrations and the celebrations that followed Sunday's victory are very positive and a really good boost for the city, uh, especially after the two years that we've had. So that's good news for us, for us all. Karen? Yeah, I still think there's more interesting developments to come on the federal conservative um, leadership race. So I'll be looking forward to those developments over the next week. And last word to you, Charles Sousa. Don't slap comedians. And oh, no. <laughs> and, but just, just live and love each other. And that we should do that as politics. <laughs> okay. And I thought we got through without mentioning that. <laughs> well done. Well done, Charles. Okay. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you very right. much. Charles Sousa, John Cabobianco, and Karen Stintz. We'll talk again soon. Anyone. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, a lot of people are behaving like we're done with COVID, but I don't think we're done with COVID. The numbers are going up. People say we're in a sixth wave, and oh, south of the border, they've just authorized fourth doses. So uh, when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. And we have news on the COVID front. Just as experts are musing about whether or not we are in a sixth wave, we're learning that the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. authorized second booster shots of Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for everyone 50 and older and some immunocompromised people. So will Canadians in this age group soon be able to line up for a fourth shot? Are you up for a fourth shot? Would you take the fourth shot? Uh, I would say not if it becomes available, but when it becomes available. Numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 Four seven forty, and uh, it's only a week since the mask mandate was lifted. And as predicted, the numbers are going up. And calling them numbers is an overstatement. Guesstimate would be more like it, in my opinion. Ontario reported nine new deaths and nearly eight hundred patients in hospital today. There were sixteen hundred and ten lab confirmed infections. 
with a positivity rate of 14.4%, and that's up from 12% a week ago. So some epidemiologists, sorry about that, are calling this a sixth wave. And one is definitely underway in Quebec and elsewhere. So once again, the numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now I'd like to welcome Dr. Timothy Sly. He is an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson. Hi, Timothy. It's been a while. Hello, Libby. Well, I spoke to Jane last time when you were away. That's right. Well, uh, so what do you think? First of all, the FDA has just approved fourth shots for people over 50. Uh, Should we get on board? Yeah, the data is coming in in bits and pieces from other countries, particularly UK. Uh, Israel is one of the big sources of data. It's not completely clear. I mean, let's face it, hardly anything in this pandemic has been 100% uh, clear and reliable. But we have to go assemble all the data and look at it. I think the best approach here is to say, if you're offered it, if you're in an age group or a health group uh, where you're offered the the, the second booster, let's call it really the the three doses plus one, then take it by all means. It won't do any harm. It'll probably add a little bit to your protection. But it's not the kind of thing we should all immediately rush out there if uh, if you've had your three doses uh, and uh, insist on getting the fourth one. There's not a lot of evidence for that. Hmm. Uh, And if there's not a lot of evidence for it, uh, why do you think uh, the FDA moved so quickly to authorize it? Well, I think it is. I certainly agree with with uh, with the the group of people who are who who have underlying medical conditions. They have uh, diabetes. They have obesity. They have. uh, obstructive pulmonary disease, they have other heart diseases, and so on. Yes, by all means, they should be on that list for the fourth dose so as soon as it becomes available. And, of course, the elderly group as, as well should be uh, considered as the next one down. And so that's what they do. And they're saying 50 other people, I think UK is saying 75, other people are saying 60 or 65. So it's all a sort of a where do you chop it off and how much is available, really. Okay, I would like to bring into the conversation Dr. Barry Pecos, Medical Officer of Health for York Region. Hi, Dr. Pecos. Thanks for having me. Uh, What's your reaction? Uh, Just in, just before we went to air, the FDA has approved the fourth dose for people 50 and over. Good, Good idea? Well, you know, as was already as as was already noted, um, you know, every country is is different. Um, in some ways, you know, what age they're setting is somewhat arbitrary. Um, I think it's not unreasonable for them to do it on that schedule. The United States, various countries in Europe, Israel has some really good data now uh, because they did this back in in January, um, and it certainly does. You know, was shown to be quite protective. It's just a question of. Should everybody be going running out and getting their their fourth dose? The answer to that is absolutely not. Um, But there are some people who are at highest risk that at some point, again, one of the differences between countries is when they when they had their third dose available and to whom, um, because we know that immunity does wane. So, you know, for example, some healthcare providers who might have gotten their third dose back in the fall, when we're thinking about, you know, this spring, maybe or maybe by next fall, they're certainly going to be in a position where they might have significant waning immunity and they're dealing with people who are definitely going to be COVID positive potentially. And you'd understand why they would want a fourth dose. Um, and so, you know, we would want to make it available then. So, you know, we're looking at it now and there are a lot of considerations to it. And, and uh, you know, we're going to do it slowly and methodically and uh, as we always have done it in, in Ontario. So we'll see how things go over the coming weeks to months. Okay, let's uh, hear from Mary and Aurelia. Hello, Mary. Hi there, how are you? Fine, how are you? Go ahead. I'm good, thank you. Um, no, I I would definitely um, get it. I'm over 50 and I'm compromised. I live in a home um, with two people that are compromised, elderly, so I would want to make sure that they're well protected. 
so, uh, yeah, and uh, uh, I've heard some people say, gee, you know, the, uh, fourth shot seems like a lot, but I don't think there's any medical evidence that that there's any issue with it, Mary. Well, exactly, and, and to be honest with you, I had no issues with the second shot, and I had no issues with the booster, so really, if it keeps me safe, and it keeps everybody I love safe, then what's the problem? Exactly. Mary, thanks for your call. You're welcome. You have a great day. Thank you. Uh, So, Dr. Sly, are we in a sixth wave? Well, you know, imagine uh, your eyes are closed and you're feeling your way along the ground and the ground starts to rise up. You don't really know whether it's a little anthill that's going to go up about four feet, or this is the beginning of the foothills of the Rockies yet. And that's where we are in the data. The uh, the indicators we've always used, which of course have been uh, case counts, which have been uh, not reliable since the very beginning, and they're even less now because we're really not doing the testing. Uh, the ones we look at now are hospitalization rates, uh, ICU rates, and the signal from wastewater. The hospitalization rates have started to increase both among the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Just in the last week or so, hospitalization is slowly going up. We don't know how far they're going to go. Maybe it's just a little speed bump, or maybe this is going to be another wave. We just don't know yet. Uh, death rates are, are staying pretty flat at the moment. But the wastewater indicator, all those areas in Ontario are showing an increase, quite a steady increase now for about three weeks. And it's not faltering. It's not a little blip. It's certainly going up. And uh, remember, the, the wastewater is, an, is a leading uh, indicator. It's, it's going to be tracking virus uh, moving around uh, two or three days before people have symptoms, and certainly about three, three weeks, two or three weeks before anybody goes in the hospital. So it's a very advanced indicator. We, we need to be looking at that. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Pecos, do you think we're in a sixth wave? I, I wouldn't say, you know, I would really agree. I wouldn't say a wave yet. Um, certainly, you know, if you were to look at a place like Ottawa and look at their wastewater data that's just going up, you know, precipitously there and almost, I think, at two-thirds of what it was during the maximum phase of the uh, the previous Omicron wave uh, in, in January, um, you know, we would look like it. But I but I think it's it's not just about what the wastewater is doing or even, you know, anecdotally what we're experiencing in the population. What really matters is the impact on on our health care system at this point in the pandemic. We haven't yet seen that. Hopefully we won't see that because we have excellent vaccination rates. Um, but we, you know, it's, it's something we've yet to see. So I, I think it will become a lot more clear over two or three weeks to come, the impact of, you know, the, removing the mask mandate. From the most part, what I've seen is many people are keeping their masks on. And I think that's going to, you know, help dull the wave. And certainly, you know, when we look at people who are vulnerable or immunocompromised, people are keeping their masks on to protect those people, and those people themselves are keeping their masks on to keep the, protect themselves, and and that's going to somewhat insulate us against cases dramatically rising. But you know, it's something we're just going to have to wait another couple of weeks to tell. It's interesting. It's also a question of where people are wearing masks. I I was uh, surprised. I did some grocery shopping on the weekend. Uh, at a place where I would have thought people would have taken off their masks, but they hadn't. Uh, and I also thought that it would be kind of older people would keep their masks on, younger people would take them off, and, and that also wasn't the case. Yeah, I, uh, Libby, I, I, I agree. Um, and I think Ontario uh, is 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 shall we say, characterized by a good, solid dollop of common sense in this area. And, I, and I, I see the same thing. I used to live in Taiwan and also Hong Kong for a while, and long before the pandemic. And where either there or in Tokyo, Singapore, you'll see people wearing masks on the street just normally. Uh, either it keeps the dust out of their lungs, or they, if they have a cold, they don't want to spread it around, and vice versa. It was a normal way of life. And I think that may be what we see here a little bit. Nothing wrong with seeing somebody uh, on the subway wearing a mask. I just hope hope very much that people don't start ridiculing them. We don't want to go back to that primitive ridiculousness. 
Okay, uh, we've got to take a break, but we will be back with more of your calls. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And we're talking to Dr. Barry Capus, Pecus, and Dr. Timothy Sly, and we will be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. I am talking to Dr. Barry Pecus, Medical Officer of Health for York Region, and Dr. Timothy Sly, an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. And they both agree uh, that the jury is out about whether we are in a sixth wave. But the indicators are that... COVID isn't over. As a matter of fact, that it is going up or going to go up because uh, the wastewater positive, the wastewater is a leading indicator. So that means perhaps it hasn't quite yet hit. Uh, also, amid all this, we just learned that in the States, the Food and Drug Administration has authorized fourth shots for people 50 and over. So there's a question. Would you get yours? Would you rush to get yours? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Let's hear from Pat. Hi, Pat. I'm getting very concerned with the use of statistics. I mean, it all sounds great to say, well, the rate has dropped or, you know, it's only X. If one person dies because we didn't wear masks, that is one person too much. Now, you also can take the other aspect that if people get sick and go to the hospital, they may survive, but it may cost for each one of them tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. So there are two very good reasons that we should be very vigilant and we should maintain as many of these practices as possible that really don't impact our daily life, but will save somebody or a number of people's lives. Okay, thanks for that, Pat. And a lot of people feel that way, but, uh, you know, uh, then they're at the other end of the spectrum. There are people who joined that trucker's convoy saying it it impeded on their freedom. Uh, Hopefully we've seen the last of that, but it is now a personal choice. It's up to us. Uh, So, Dr. Pecos, what are you seeing? Are you seeing people taking a cautious approach or diving headlong into, uh, you know, normal life, if you want to call it that? Different people are certainly doing different things. And we know the people who, for some time, have been very enthusiastic to exercise their personal rights to, you know, either take off masks, get vaccinated or not. Um, but, you know, in, in Canada, in Ontario, it, that is a minority. And, you know, people are exercising their free choice for the most part just to care about others. And, and I think that's great. I mean, I think this is, you know, bringing out the best of people, and the best of our society in many ways. Um, because they are still doing that. You know, it's, uh, it's really important that they are thinking about their own personal risk. One of the things, of course, they're doing is, you know, keeping that mask on when they're out in public, because who knows what's going on out there, and they're taking off their masks in smaller gatherings or maybe even larger gatherings where they know the people who are there. And that is actually where they're probably getting infected from. But, you know, they're taking that sort of decision to say, you know, I know this, these people who are in my smaller circle I really want to get together with them. I'm willing to take that risk. And, you know, sometimes they are having, you know, a birthday party outbreak, that kind of thing. But, you know, that's the kind of choice that they're making. And for the most part, I think it's the common sense that is prevailing right now. And I think that's just a really good message at this time in the pandemic. And as we as we move closer towards the summer and hopefully moving out uh, in some ways of, of, you know, active pandemic management, that's a great thing to uh, to move out with the kindness, and caring and and the solidarity. Well, yeah, and it's interesting what you say about uh, people loosening up with people they know. Just because you know somebody doesn't mean they don't have COVID, and it's very contagious these days, Dr. Sly. 
Oh, absolutely. 100%. And I totally agree with uh, Dr. Pecos's view on that one. Couldn't agree more. In fact, we're seeing, um, with, uh, just reading yesterday, uh, in view of the last caller, too, I think his point was very well taken. That he, if you can do something small, some small uh, protective uh, uh, step, why wouldn't you take it anyway? Because it's going to do... And I was reading uh, just yesterday a paper just produced uh, in Lancet, I think two days ago, that looks at the co-infection between influenza and COVID. And surprise, surprise, the, uh, if the possibility for serious illness uh, takes a great increase and the possibility for invasive or the need for invasive ventilation increases as well. So what's the message here? Well, make sure you get your COVID vaccination up to date. And also, as October rolls around, make sure you get your influenza vaccination as well. We don't want these things to occur in the same person at the same time. Well, there was a, a, a big warning about that this year, warning against the twindemic, and it didn't materialize, presumably because people heeded the warning. Is, is, is that what happened, Dr. Pecos? Yeah, to some degree, it did. You know, I think it, it's interesting to look around the world. As, as we come up on this fall, um, we look around the world about what happened last fall, and in countries where they did, you know, take off their masks a little bit early because they may have had a lull over the summer and they felt they were able to do so, um, it wasn't only influenza, to be honest. Influenza is a really important virus. But, but um, you know, in a country like Israel, for example, they started seeing things like RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, metanumavirus, a whole bunch of other viruses that hadn't been circulating for quite some time because everybody had been, you know, not gathering, wearing masks and all that during COVID. So, you know, whether it's COVID or influenza or a variety of other viruses that might be circulating, um, there is going to be a, t- a time, and most likely it's in the fall, um, where we're going to see a lot more transmission of all of those things. And, and that's the piece that we really need to be prepared for. It, the, the bonus about flu is that we have a vaccine for that. We got a vaccine for COVID. We know how to, how to deal with it. Some of those other viruses um, that are, you know, not necessarily known for causing a lot of harm to individuals might actually be the culprit. Uh, in the fall. So that, you know, those are things we're really going to watch for. And, you know, we may be able to gradually take off our masks over the summer. But I think, you know, again, focusing on the reasonableness principle in Ontario, we may all want to put them back on in the fall. Okay. Uh, let's hear from Nelson in Strathroy. Hello, Nelson. Good afternoon, Libby. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Go uh, ahead. Um, as we always, every every um, wave that comes through, there's always a different strain of COVID that comes along with it. Uh, this sixth wave, will the fourth shot be able to combat it? Like we had the Omicron come through and the the beta and all that. They always had um, a little bit of a difficulty, as they've always said. Oh, the um, uh, yeah, you're asking, will the fourth dose protect against uh, whatever the next strain is or against Correct. the BA2 strain? Uh, doctors, who wants to take that? I can comment, Dr. Pekasi, I can comment on um, a couple of studies just released in the past week or two uh, in Israel. Some of them actually not really released, but I, we've seen the data for it. Um, that does show that the fourth dose, um, protect not necessarily as much against infection, which again, it, it doesn't seem to work for the Omicron variant as well. But what it does do is protect against serious illness, infection, or death. Um, and, and it does a, a fairly good job. So, you know, between two and 10 or 12 weeks after the shot, it does protect against death quite well, which of course is the metric we're really looking at in the end. Um, but it doesn't last all that long, that degree of protection. So, you know, what we're going to have to just continue to do is look how the fourth dose rolls out in the United States, in the UK, in Italy, in Israel, and and see how long that protection lasts, specifically from that severe illness, and then think about when it's best to implement it in Ontario. You know, maybe it would be good to do it now for people who are more than six months out for the third shot, but maybe it'd be better to wait until the fall, because, you know, I, I certainly have spoken to others, and, and I think Dr. Uni um, has mentioned this as well. If we really try to be proactive when we get people vaccinated in early in the fall, you know, end of August, early September, you know, the, the winter after that, you know, in December and January, when people are gathering in the holidays, that might pose a problem for us. So, you know, there's a lot of consideration, a lot of complexity, a lot of 
social dynamics and, and medical dynamics and immunology going on. And, and you know, that's, those are things we're looking at in the scientific community all the time. And, you know, that's the kind of thing we're going to come out and ask people to, you know, adhere to whatever guidance we put out there. And, and, uh, and hopefully they will. And, and they've proven time and time again that they do in Ontario. So, you know, again, whatever is, gets decided, I think, you know, we'll, we'll be in a, as good a position as we can be. Hmm. That's interesting because uh, things, uh, even at the height of COVID, eased up in the summer. So uh, maybe it's best to hold off. Let's hear from Caroline in Halliburton. Hello, Caroline. Hello, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, my husband and I are have had three shots already. We're fine. Uh, we've also been exposed uh, at Christmas time and had symptoms for a couple of days, but fortunately didn't become ill. And we've both sort of come to the conclusion that this is going to be like the flu as far as the vaccinations are concerned. We're quite prepared to take a shot every year as we do to protect us from the flu. And uh, I can appreciate that this is still a very much a learning exercise as we go through, and that all may change depending on what happens over the next six months or so. But, but basically, it's learning to live with it, and we will do so. But my question is for the doctors, and it's got to do with viral load. I'd heard that term used a fair bit as far as um, people that are, are vaccinated versus those that are not, and how contagious things can be for uh, Caroline, those that are vaccinated a, um, and those that are not. And I wondered if the doctors could make a comment. Okay, a quick one. Thanks for your call, Caroline. Uh, Dr. Sly, what will you say? Okay, very, very quickly. Uh, all the way through, we've learned that the amount of virals that uh, you take in uh, will dictate uh, your likelihood to be a serious illness, not in the only factor, and also uh, going on to, 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 to death and so on. Also, the amount of... Uh, um, uh, viral load you take in is going to be determining uh, how much you can spread to other people as well. So it's a very good point. But I think go back to Caroline's earlier point. She is right on. She's exactly got the right attitude. Uh, be vaccinated with uh, with COVID and also be, be prepared to be vaccinated on a regular basis, probably every year, maybe along with the, uh, the, the flu virus. Who knows? But on a regular basis, that's how we're going to live with this thing. Dr. Pecos, uh last word to you. Yeah, I, I, I would definitely agree. I think, you know, we, we may need manual shot, but you know what? You know, vaccine technology is, is really progressing. I'm certainly hopeful, um, whether it's flu or uh, Omicron variant, uh, that we may get a vaccine that protects us even better and may get a vaccine that protects us year to year. That would be terrific. Um, but in the meantime, you know, using what we have right now, you know, an annual shot may be the sort of thing that we're going to be looking at. But but really, I'm not pronouncing that right now because we still have some time until the fall and, and a lot can change. OK, well, um, thank you so much to Dr. Timothy Sly and Dr. Barry Pecos. And even though we haven't been talking much about COVID, it is still with us. And uh, with that, that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.